Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. All right, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. My name is, is Vince. I'm one of the elders here. I'm the teaching pastor. If we have not yet met, I'd, I'd love to meet you. Here is where we are headed this week. Let me, let me start here. We're starting a new series. Um, we have notebooks at the front uh, table if you are a note taker and have a desire to keep track of your notes all together. This is a 13-week series. Who wants one and did not get one when you walked in? Uh, I'm so tempted to throw them. I'm not going to do it. I'm actually going to try one. Who, who do I trust? All right. Thanks, Eddie. All right. And then I'm just going to do this. All right. And pass them around. Um, pass them back. Um, if you didn't get one, they're, they're on the table. And also these. This is our doctrinal statement printed out front and back. They're also on the, the table out front. Um, you can just have those as reference as we go along. Um, let me give you a little bit of direction about where we are headed over the next weeks. This is going to be quite different than um, what we've done in the past. And this is why. Um, this is why typically as a church, what we do is we spend our time together looking at uh, books of the Bible, at the Word of God in entire books of the Bible. So we'll start in the beginning, work all the way through a book of the Bible. We just finished recently Hebrews, and that's what we do typically. That's, that's the direction that we go typically. Um, my desire as a pastor, as a preacher, is to preach the whole counsel of God. That's what we desire as elders, is to preach the whole counsel of God uh, from beginning to end. And so my, my hope, uh, f- uh, just personally, is that I would be able to preach the entire Bible. It's a, it'd be a real joy of mine. Um, I always joke about this, that Eric would wheel me up here when I'm 96 years old and he still looks 30, and that I would be able to, to preach the entire, um, you know, I'd, I'd be in Zephaniah at that point, right? And we just do it, right? And so that's my desire. That's what we typically do. Uh, several months ago, though, we, um, the thought came about that it could be good for us to take a season as a church to consider and also then to walk through what we believe about God and about how he wants us to live in light of what we believe about him as a church. And so we decided um, uh, several months ago to, to walk through our doctrinal statement, our, our foundational beliefs as a people under God. Now, we have a 13-point doctrinal statement um, that, that we follow. Um, some of you may or may not know that. Uh, I mean, we, we thought it'd be good for us to just take some time to slowly, uh, week by week, walk through each of those 13 points one a week. Um, uh, the jury's still out on whether or not that's a good idea. Um, I'll let you decide. But here, here's what we're doing. If you're unfamiliar with the word doctrine, you've heard me say doctrinal statement. If you're unfamiliar with that word, here's what it is. And put, put, wrap your brain around this because I think this is helpful for us. A doctrine, this is the definition. A, a doctrine is a belief or a set of beliefs held and taught by a group of people. Now, I know that sounds simple, 
But, but get your mind there. It, it's, a, it's a set of beliefs, a belief or a set of beliefs, held and taught by a group of people. So we're the group of people that, that we hold to a, a set group of, of beliefs together. And for us, that, that rallies us in the same direction. And so we thought it'd be good for us to just work through some of those things. And truly, if, if you've been a part of a church or, or have been in church circles, these things are not going to be way outside of your, um, of what you've heard before. This is what, these are just foundational beliefs of, of what the church for centuries, the historic church for centuries have believed, right? And so um, that, that's the direction we're headed. Before we even get going into that, though, I want to put in front of us a few guidelines uh, for how we're going to look at this series, right? So this is going to be different than, than the weeks to come. And I want to put it in front of you a few guidelines for us, a few things to consider as we approach a, a series like this. First, while we won't be moving through a specific book of the Bible, we are going to use our Bibles, okay? So bring a Bible with you. Now, I don't do this often. I, I don't have, I don't have, um, I don't get uh, credit from the publishing companies, but I'm going to encourage this. Um, get a paper Bible. Uh, your phone is fine. An, a- an app on, on some device is fine. A paper Bible gives you the context of where the book is in, placed in Scripture. It's been laid out for us in intentional ways. And so I would encourage you to, to be reading and following long, uh, along in a paper Bible so that you can get the flow of where we're headed in Scripture. All right, so we're going to use a Bible. Um, and, and if you don't own a Bible, if you're unfamiliar with um, what, wh- where to go in the Bible and all of that, we would love to give you a Bible. Um, and so take the Bible that's there in the pew, one of the black ones, write your name in the front of it, right? That becomes yours. Once you write your name on something, it's yours, right? So that's how that goes. Write your name in it, put stickers on it, spill coffee all over it. It becomes yours. So that would be yours. We'd love to give you the the gift. We're going to be using our Bibles. Secondly, uh, in a series like this that focuses on doctrine, those things we believe as a group of people, that focuses on doctrine, the temptation may be for us to, to put our thinking caps on and to really and truly begin to think deeply about the things we're learning and get bogged down in the theoretical, intellectual, theological only. Right? It, that may be the temptation. And some of you are like, yes, finally. Right? That's what we've been waiting for. Um, and, and if that's you, that's great. Use your mind well. I'm all for it. At the same time, what, what I want to do in a series like this and put, is put in front of us the reality that there are times that we together as a people can be learning in a variety of different ways. So, so we can be learning in, in all kinds of ways. We can be using our, our minds deeply to think about these things. We can, we can also be creative in how we approach an understanding of God. Gasp, right? Creativity and understanding God. We can. And, and so what we've done... About five months ago, we pulled together several creative people in our church family... And we asked them to, to represent each of the doctrines in our statement in, in, a, in a work of art. And so over the next 13 weeks, we're going to be putting in front of you some of the, the work that they have done to get those 13 um, uh, doctrines, um, beautiful doctrines, presented, displayed creatively in front of us. And so what I want to do this morning is I want, I want to show you our first one. We're, we're looking at the, the triune God. And um, with each of these, um, I've asked each of the artists to, to put together a statement that explains 
their work, all right? So if you're sort of out here in, your, in the, the thinking world and you don't understand creativity at all, um, I'll read to you. You can understand words, right? So I'll read to you um, what some of these things mean. So this one's by Andrew Steger. He's one of our artists that you have probably seen his work. Um, and here's what he says about the triune God. This piece is an imperfect attempt to represent the triune nature of God. The triangle shown is a variation of the Penrose Triangle, an optical illusion that pushes and plays with our limits of human understanding. This felt appropriate because it's impossible for our finite selves to fully comprehend the infinite nature and being of God. Each equal section of the shape represents one person of the triune God. God the Father, in Hebrew there, Yahweh. God the Son, the hand of Jesus that's shown. And then God the Spirit, the dove wing as a representation of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism. So each section of the shape folds back into itself as a representation of the three persons of the Trinity, knowing, loving, and glorifying each while each being part of the whole. The primary colors represent the triune God being the foundation and author of creativity and beauty. Okay, so that's Andrew's work. That's his representation of the triune God. We're going to be showing these weekly. So uh, I think it's a beautiful way for us to communicate hard, sometimes hard doctrines in ways that that engage different parts of our our, our senses in that way. And so um, that's the second thing. In addition, the notebooks that I just conned you all into taking um, are blank on, on the front and back, and we would encourage you to, to begin to think about how can I creatively design this notebook. Um, some of you are throwing the notebooks back up here the, right now. Right. Um, how, how can you present your own sort of understanding of what God is, is teaching you through that in your own experiences? All right, so second, um, uh, creative uh, understanding of that. And then third, in a series that focuses on doctrine, the things we believe as a group of people, sometimes really difficult doctrines— uh, that make our heads explode, which we'll see here in just a bit. We, we've got to remember that the end goal in that is not simply a greater head understanding of who God is, right? Does that make sense? So, so the end goal is not just bit bigger knowledge of who God is. The end goal is greater affections for God. A, a deeper love for who God is. The, the fact that he's all-powerful and that all glory is due him. And so that would be our, our move, and that's our, our hope. From the very beginning of creation, God had a desire to not simply be studied, right? From, from the very beginning of creation, uh, God had a desire to not just simply be well thought of by humans, right? Let's, let's think about these things deeply. God had a desire to be loved. Hear that? God had a desire to be loved, to have all of our attention and all of our affection. Even even as God gave the laws, in the very beginning of the laws, he said in Deuteronomy 6, he says, You shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's affection language, right? And some of you are really scared right now affections. I don't know. Uh, that's affection language. 
And it's moving us in that direction. Let's be careful not to separate knowledge and affections, all right? That's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying if you have knowledge of something, you can't also have affections. I think they're, they're woven together. In fact, hundreds of years later, Jesus quoted this text, not the same text, to answer the questioning Pharisees about the, the greatest law. They said, Who's, what's the greatest law? And, and he responds, and, and what does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. Right? Jesus adds mind here, not, not because it wasn't already said, but, but because Jesus is trying to further explain what the, what the Jewish people thought of. When, when they heard, love the Lord your God with all your heart, they heard, love him with everything that is about you. Love him with, with all of your being. And so Jesus is moving in the direction of saying, yes, love the Lord your God with, with everything that is about you, our affections for our deep love for God, everything that's in us is the greatest calling on us to, to love God. If we don't love God, if our affections for him are not being stirred, then an understanding of him is merely head knowledge that will probably lead toward arrogance or legalism. Do you understand that? That if it's just head knowledge, without our affections being stirred for him, then it's probably going to lead us toward arrogance and in the end legalism with a set of laws that we're to obey and that's all. That's how we view God. And that's not at all what he's called us to. And so over the next several weeks into the summer, we're going to be constantly pushing us to remember that while we've also been called to know God, that the knowledge of him must be driving us to love him more deeply so that we would worship him more, more intently. Does that make sense? Around the, all right, everybody got it? Got one head nod. Thank you, Jeff. One head nod uh, among us, right? It's going to be a long morning. I'll tell you that. All right, so here we go. Um, here's what we're doing. I want to read the first doctrine for us. Um, the first one in our set of 13, I'll do this, we'll do this every week. We'll read the doctrine and then we'll begin to work through it. Here's the doctrine. The triune God. Here's what it says. We believe in one God who eternally exists in three equally divine persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who know love and glorify one another. This one true and living God is worthy to receive all glory and adoration. That is our first doctrine in a set of 13. Hang with me, please. It's hot in here. um, This is going to feel like a lot of information. It is, but again, it's moving us in the direction of greater affections for God. Um, This doctrine is often referred to as the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, a word, by the way, that's nowhere mentioned in the Bible. Trinity is nowhere mentioned explicitly in the Bible, but the concepts are all over the Bible. And so what I want to do this morning is just show us how those concepts play out. And I'll start by saying this, that there's much more that could be said about this doctrine than we have time to cover in the next three hours. But what we're going to do together is hopefully walk through that. And, and I'll say this, if you want to, to know more about this and study more deeply about these things, I would encourage you to, to find a, a systematic theology. I could recommend several. It's a big book that you can use as a doorstop when you're not reading it, um, that, that just walks through systematically all of the doctrines that we see in scripture. I think every household ought to have one as a reference. And I could recommend one if you don't have one. All right, um, so um, this is a a doctrine. The Trinity is a doctrine that's been fought over, debated for years and years and years. 
Uh, councils have been brought together for, for centuries to, to walk through what, what people believe uh, about this. People have, have shed blood over these things. The Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople and the Council of Chalcedon, to, to name just a few of those, were all put in place to, to try to work through some of the heresies, some in part related to the doctrine of the, the Trinity. And so we'll, we'll not get into everything today, but there's a lot that, that could be said. There's a lot there, and if you're interested, certainly more you you could look at. For what we're, what we're going to do today, for our purposes, I'm going to split this up into three points. And here, here's what they are. Our three points is taken right from our, our statement, is this, that there is one God, that there are three persons in that one God, and that all three persons are fully God. All right? Everybody got that? We just close in prayer now and head home, right? Um, th- there's a lot here. It's important, I think, to look at this and, and start where? With God. Do you see that? It's important to see that this all starts with God. There's only one God. There's not many gods. And I think we could pause there and just say, thank you, God. Right? That we don't have one God that's over the weather. Right? And we don't have one God that's over salvation, things pertaining to salvation. We don't have another God over here that, that, that we would pray to for healing. And we've got all these separate uh, deities that we go to. We could, I think, stop right now and just thank God that we have one God. That we don't have to try to figure out, how do I approach this one again? What was his name? What was her name? I don't understand. What, how do we do this? We have one God. I think we pause there and just thank God that there is one God. In fact, theologians of old used to call this the, the simplicity of God. That there's one God. Not that, not that God himself is simple, but the simplicity of God is this. That, that in everything about his being, everything about his, his essence is crucial to who he is. So everything about him is crucial. Everything about God's nature must be present perfectly or he is not God. Does that make sense? He's not God if everything about him is not perfectly true. So God cannot be described like the nutritional facts on your yogurt, right? That you've got daily allotments for the things that you need, and I don't even know what that one is. You probably shouldn't be eating it if you don't know what it is. But but you can't just divide all these things up and, and take parts away and put parts in and section things out. He is simply one. That's what these theologians meant. This is the simplicity of God. Now hold on to that, we'll, we'll get back to that. The truth that there is one God is all over the Bible. It's, we don't have to search very very long. It's all over the Bible. In fact, Deuteronomy 6, we, we already read it. Uh, before the verse we read, Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this is called in, in the, uh, among the people of God from centuries past, this is called the Shema, and, and the children and the adults would all memorize this and they would speak this about what they believed about God. This was a part of their, their sort of daily rhythm of what they thought uh, about God. The Lord is one. God is one. And so we don't have to go too far. It's a foundational passage for the people of God. We could go on to so many other places all over Scripture where God proclaims the fact that He is one. There is no other God. There, there is no other God. Isaiah 45 is one of those places. You can read it in its entirety uh, sometime this week. But several times over, God um, talks about the fact that, that he himself is one. There, there is no other. In fact, I want us to look at it. Isaiah 45. Um, Isaiah is a- after the book of Psalms. Um, you, you can find it. It's a, it's a big one, 66 chapters. Isaiah 45. 
We'll start reading in, in verse 20. All right, God's the one speaking here. This is a, a prophecy from Isaiah, but, it, but God's the one speaking. He's saying this to his people in the midst of a pagan culture. So, so he's speaking this in the midst of a pagan culture. I've got it on the screen now that you've all found it. See how I did that? You found it, now I've got it, right? So Isaiah 45, starting in verse 20, here's what God says. He says, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? So he's setting up this case. There aren't lots of little gods, lots of little wooden idols that you would worship. Look at how it continues. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. You can compile all the little wooden gods you want. Here's what he's saying. You can get all these things together and you can group them together and you can try to worship these things, but they aren't going to save you. There's no God like me. There's one God. I'm that God. That's what God is saying here. Listen, friends. I think we need to hear that. Some of us this morning may need to be awoken to the idea that we too may be chasing after other idols or that we've made God into something we want him to be. Maybe that's where you lean more. That you've tried to, to make God into the very thing you want him to be, which is an idol in itself. And some of us may need to be awoken to that idea that we've been moving in that direction, that this is something um, God's uh, word speaks to prolifically, that there's one God, that God is not you and it's not something that you've made. Why does it speak to it prolifically? Because... From the very beginning of creation, humans have wanted to be God, haven't they? Isn't this what the serpent tried to tempt Adam and Eve with and did? Tempt Adam and Eve with? He said, God knows if you eat the fruit, you'll be like him. He doesn't want that, so eat up. That's what was going on. If you've been leaning towards something else, being an object of worship, I don't say this to try to encourage you in that direction, but I say this to, to be a comfort. You're not alone. You're not alone in that fight. You're not alone in wrestling with that, right? That you're seeing something, an object of worship, an object that you would idolize as being really a God for you. Maybe that's a new job or a new title or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or maybe a family that you've been desiring to have or a new toy, new gadget of some sort that you just have all your energy focused on. Maybe it's more money or financial stability or attention from mom or dad like you've never gotten before or attention from a a coworker or a boss or whatever that is. You've been pursuing um, something to be the thing that will save you, an object of worship. And so it may be this morning that you need to hear this right here. There is only one God. There's only one God. And, and that's not you, and, and it's not anything that you would fashion. Right? So who would have thought in, in the middle of a, a sermon on the Trinity that we would have been dropped to our knees in confession and repentance, that there's one God, 
and he deserves all of our attention and all of our affection, that we would cry out, God, help me to believe that. The first commandment in in the 10 speaks to this. Exodus 20 says, I I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You have no, uh, you, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the very first of the commands. There, there is one God believing that and communicating that is an act of obedient worship. Just speaking that. There's one God. It is an act of obedient worship. Moving in the direction of worshiping Him in that way is, a, is an act of obedience. That there is one God. I don't know of um, too many conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing churches who would say, yeah, we believe in a variety of different gods, right? So, so this one's a little bit more easy to comprehend, isn't it? Yep, there's one God. I think everybody would say, yep, there's one God. Even people who don't believe in God would say, if there's a God, it's the God, it's one God. I don't know, right? So this isn't all that difficult to understand. But I think we get to the place of thinking, but who is that? Right, that's where we go. Is that me? Is it something else? How do, where do we lean? That's what needs to be corrected, And so if we're working through our doctrine and what we believe as a church, we can't just land on, yep, there's one God, because many people would say that and agree there. So we have to keep going and say, yeah, we believe that there is one God and that there are three persons in that one God. Right? That's where our minds turn to mush, right? And we have a hard time comprehending this altogether. I'm not a very bright person. You all know that. No hearty amens there. I'm not a very bright person. But I will say um, this, that, that, that you should be skeptical of the person who claims they understand the concept of the Trinity. You should back away quickly, right? Because it's, it's really challenging to understand. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not a very bright person, but I, I've got a, a quite a bit of education in uh, biblical studies and theology. Keep in mind, I also have a degree in sculpture, so, right? Um, But I I have a master's in divinity, and I don't even know what that means because I have not yet mastered divinity. But I've got a a lot of training in these kinds of things and the original languages and all that. I don't say any of that to hype myself. I say that in some ways as self-deprecation because I don't get this stuff. It, It boggles my mind. And my, my mind is just turned to mush as I think about this, that I, that I would marvel in the fact that there's, yes, one true God, and then right at the heels of that say, and there are three persons in that one true God, question mark? I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand it completely. And if you're with me there, I think that's exactly what God would desire of us so that we would continue to pursue an understanding of who he is and marvel at the fact that that he is unlike anything we would be able to comprehend. There are three persons in the one God. Who are they? Let let me hear it. God the Father, God the and God the Right? And I'm trying to bring back God the Holy Ghost, but I don't know if that's going to go anywhere. Right? So God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now in saying that, there are three persons in the one God. There are a couple things that we're not saying. I know this is bad teaching, but I'm just going to go there. There are a couple things we're not saying. And here's what we're not saying. First, we're not saying that there are three different gods. That, that's not what we're saying. This is where our, my brain melts a, a little bit. There are 
three distinct persons, and by persons we don't mean human people, we mean they are personal. They're, they're personal. There are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all one God. This means that the Father is not the Son. This means that the Son is not the Father. This means that the Spirit is not the Father, that the Son is not the Spirit. So we're not saying that there are three different gods. Uh, Secondly, we're not saying that it is one God who acts and responds in three different ways depending on our need. So this isn't like you with uh, your parents, kids. Like, I go to my my dad whenever I want candy because I know he'll give it to me. He doesn't care, right? And I go to my mom when I want this, and I go to grandma because she'll give me anything, right? It's not like that, that we have different gods that we go to depending on what we want. Right? We're not saying that, that it's one God who acts and responds in three different ways depending on, on that need. No, it's three distinct persons in one God, all of them unified as one. All of them in the same direction. And because of this is outside of the categories of, of understanding, and it is, by the way, outside of the categories of, of understanding, many have tried to come up with analogies right, that, that fit this. You've probably heard of some of them. Have you heard of any? Yell them out. Eggs, all right, or an egg, right? Water, right? And all of them break down, right, at some point. Right? I didn't hear all of them, but all of them at some point break down because they don't truly get at all of the things that we're trying to say. So, some would say a, an egg, that there, there are three different parts, all of the same thing. But, but here's where that breaks down. Each of those parts is distinct and not like the other part altogether. Right? And so that begins to break down. And we could go through all kinds of analogies that in some way break down because there is nothing like the Trinity That there's one God, and that there are three persons in that one God. And again, I think that's God's intent, so that we would keep pushing in to understand Him and grow in our affections for Him. Right. So if the word Trinity is never used in in the Bible, which which it's not, that the word is not used, the question may arise then, is the doctrine of the Trinity, of this one God and three persons, is the doctrine actually in the Bible at all? And the answer to that is yes. It's seen in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see it from the very beginning of creation. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then after sin entered, Genesis 3, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. We just keep going through Genesis, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Let us go down. And so we see in the Old Testament, this plural language where the different persons of the Trinity are being used collectively. Uh, we see this also, if you remember from our, our study in Hebrews, the author quoted Psalm 110 over and over, where, where the author of Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We, we see two persons of the Trinity in, in that verse together, talking back and forth. And we know from Hebrews 1 that it's God the Father and God the Son, God having authority over the enemies, causing the enemies to be subservient to the Son. And so there are two roles uh, being played out there. You, you may say, okay, well, that's the Father and the Son in the Old Testament, but what about the Holy Spirit? Is, is the Holy Spirit there? And we see the Holy Spirit active in the Old Testament as well in the creation account. The Holy Spirit does what? 
hovers over the waters. Genesis 1, verse 2. We also see in Isaiah 63, 10, that God's people rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. We could go on and on. All three persons of the one God are present in the Old Testament at times, all of them present at the same time, in the same setting. Well, how about the, how about the New Testament? Right? In some ways, it's, it's a little bit easier to see the three persons in the one God more clearly in the New Testament. One of the most well-known passages where we see this is, is Matthew chapter 3 in Jesus' baptism. Isn't it? Where um, it says, and when Jesus was baptized immediately, so we have Jesus present, right, when he was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we see all, all three persons of the Trinity in action here. Jesus being baptized, the Spirit descending like a dove, like a dove, not a dove, but like a dove and the voice of the Father commending the the Son. So three very distinct persons, yet one God. Mind blown, can't understand it, but it's, it's there. Generally speaking, if you're wanting some ideas in the New Testament of how to gauge who, who's being spoken of, the authors use the name God to refer to the Father. And generally speaking, they use the designation Lord when speaking of the Son. And guess what it is for the Spirit? Spirit, right? So they use Spirit there. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit... And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. We we see the same kind of language in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Each person of the Trinity distinct from one another and and still one that the father is not the son the son is not the father they are distinct it's not simply one god with different name designations distinct i think we we see this um, more clearly in in john chapter one where where john says in the beginning was the word and here the word refers to jesus In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The the Word was with God, and and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him uh, was not anything made that was made. The Father and the Son, distinct persons. You see that? Uh, Likewise, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, nor the Son uh, the Holy Spirit. We see this in, in John chapter 14. Uh, It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So three very distinct persons, uh, all of them part of the one God. The the Old Testament and and the New Testament speak about these three persons in this one God. And if they are distinct uh, from one another, yet still one God... How, how then are they, how are they distinct? I think that's the question that, that ought to come to mind. How are they distinct? If they're one but, but, but distinct, how is that possible? Each of these could be a separate 
sermon probably. In fact, we'll, we'll touch on some of these things in the weeks to come as we focus more intently on, on the different persons of the Trinity. But how are these three persons of this one God distinct? We could go down uh, several different avenues to see the distinctions of them. Um, so we, we could do that. Let me, let me just go with this direction to give you an example. In creation, how are they distinct? All right, uh, in creation, we would say that God the Father spoke the creative word to bring creation into being. That's God the Father's role. Right? And, and then God the Son carried out, we, we see this, God, God the Son carried out all of the creative decrees. Right? So uh, Scripture says that in Him all things were created, all things were made through Him. So the Son carried out all the, the, the decrees. And then God the Holy Spirit, as we said earlier, is active in creation in His hovering over creation. Right? Seemingly... To, to be God's presence in and among creation when it was happening. Right, so we could go down that avenue and say, yep, creation, this is how they're distinct. Let, let's go a different direction. This one make, may m- make more sense. How about salvation? How are the three persons of the triune God distinct in the role they play in salvation? I'm going to explain this. I think this ought to move us in, in, into worship as well. In salvation, God the Father... And eternity past came up with a plan to save and predestined those towards salvation. God the Father came up with that plan. God the Son came to earth to carry that plan out, to die on a cross, to to stand in our place, to cover our sins and sacrifice for our salvation. And, And God the Spirit in salvation convicts of sin uh, takes up residence in, in the Christian, regenerating them and sealing their final salvation. And so do you see how each of the persons of the triune God are, are distinct in the role that they play, even in salvation? See, that, that ought to move us to worship. That God the Father is the one planning and orchestrating, while God the Son is the one active and obedient, and, and God the Spirit is, is the, the helper who's pointing to the direction of the activity of the Son and, and the plan of the Father. These are the, the distinct persons of the one God. And, and I know this is probably going to take some work to wrap our brains around, but seeing the distinct roles in these different persons of the Trinity is reason to worship God. That we have one God who, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united in the divine plan of salvation that they're not at odds. One's not like, I don't think that's a good plan. Right? Even Jesus, when He said, Father, if there's another way, would You do it? Not my will, but Yours. They're unified in the direction that they're moving. That ought to lead us to, to worship. That God had a plan to, to bring Himself glory in the salvation of sinners like you and me. God the Father had a plan, a perfect plan that would be upheld through His Son. And God the Father had a plan that, that through the Holy Spirit he would, he would soften hearts and draw people to Himself. And it, it, it's their unified uh, oneness that is planned and accomplished and secured salvation. Friends, we have reason to worship this one God, don't we? And the reason we can worship the, the triune God is because I'm going back to the outline again. All three persons are fully God. There's not one that's like, I don't know if that one's God, right? They're all fully God. Let me, let me just walk through briefly a few passages that reveal the divinity of each, the divine nature of each. First, God the Father. 
There's not much debate there that God the Father is God, right? I don't know of anyone who's saying, I don't know about that. Even if you don't, again, even if you don't believe in in God, you would at least say, if there is a God, then that God is probably God, right? You you would say that. And so all over the Bible, we could go, how does Genesis 1-1 start? In the beginning, God, right? So God is God. God the Father is fully God. Secondly, God the Son is fully God. Again, we could go to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, so the Son is God. And while that, that may come as a no-brainer to many of us, that there are many around us, probably many who you know well and many who you love many who are in in tight circles with you as friends, maybe even family members, who would not lean in the direction of seeing Jesus as God. Uh, The the people, our friends who are Jehovah's Witness, will say that Jesus is not the God, but he's a God. Uh, The the Mormon uh, friends that we would have would say, would not hold to the truth that Jesus is is God. And many other uh, world views and and religions would would not view Jesus as as God. They would say, yep, he's a good teacher. And he's one that we would hold up as an example and how we ought to be living. Right? So we would go in in that direction. In fact, that's probably the most prevalent um, uh, teaching around us, or at least the prevalent thought around us. From the very beginning... Jesus, even though he came to earth as a man, was God, right? The the prophecies speak to this. It screams to this, right? Uh, Isaiah 9, um, starting in verse 6, a prophecy about Jesus. For for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, what? Mighty God, right? Uh, Mighty God. So from the very beginning, Jesus is, is proclaimed as God. And we see this ongoing throughout um, the Old and New Testament. We see this um, from one of his disciples, Thomas. Right? We can go to Thomas, the, the, the guy who said, I'm going to need to touch the, the holes in Jesus' hands and feet and, and, and the hole in his side to just really believe that this is the resurrected Christ. You remember that? And, and Jesus obliges, right? And, and so that carries forward. And what does Thomas say in John chapter 20? He says, my Lord and my God. So, so Thomas himself, one who's doubting, also sees God the Son as fully God. We say, well, how's the, how is God the Holy Spirit fully God? What, what does Jesus say right before he ascends into heaven after his resurrection? Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's putting all three persons of the Trinity on the same plane. The Father and the Son are God. And there's no way he would have put the Spirit on the same plane had he not thought that the Spirit was also God. So the Holy Spirit is also God. We could go to all all kinds of other places. Acts 5. Ananias is caught lying to the church leaders. If you remember that story, Ananias is caught lying to the, the church leaders about the mount he has given um, to the church. And what does Peter say? He comes in and rebukes him. He says, Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. You have not lied to man, but to God. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is God. You've lied to God. The Holy Spirit is also God. So God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. Each distinct from one another, all one 
God, each uh, know and love and glorify and point the attention to the other. We see this all over the place. I was reading in John uh, a couple weeks ago. I don't remember where it was. Um, uh, but, but Jesus, uh, there's this shocking statement where Jesus says, I didn't come that I would have glory, but I came that, that God would point the glory to me. God the Father would point the glory to me. Right? And he back to God, and the Spirit does the, the same thing. The, the Son points to the Spirit. The Son points to the Father. The Spirit teaches us about the Son. The Son glorifies the, the Spirit. All of those are, are unified together. There's one God. There are three persons in that one God, and all three persons are fully God. Deep breath. Friends, this is unique to Christianity. This is unique to what we believe as a people. This is is a doctrine, right? A a set of beliefs that that are held and taught by a people. This is unique to Christianity. The beautiful doctrine is first among the, the 13 in our statement because what we believe about the triune God establishes the foundation for everything we believe about God and how we are to live under Him. And the very last sentence of our doctrinal statement in this section says, This one true and living God is worthy to receive all glory and adoration. These truths are are meant to move us to adoration, to, to worshiping God. These aren't just heady things that make our minds mush and we just give up. These things are meant to move us to worship God. And there are a variety of reasons we could be moved to worship. But, but let me end here. Let me end with this one. I think something we all may need to hear. And it's this. That we have a God and Father. We have, we have God the Son and God the Spirit who define love and love us deeply. Can, can we just end, end, end with that? I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 4, and we'll, we'll end by reading this. 1 John chapter 4, we see this triune God is a God of love. If you don't know where 1 John is, Hebrew is what we just studied near the back of your Bible. Then you've got uh, James, Peter, and then the letters John wrote. 1 John 4, I want you to see this. I want you, I want you to see the Trinity spelled out here and how it, it's all moved and motivated by love. Now to blow our minds that we have a God, the God of the universe, in three distinct persons who loves us deeply. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. After you found it, now I have it on the screen. Good job. Here, here's what it says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him, And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, 
and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Do you see that? That the Trinity at work in love, that that the triune God is defined by love, the very definition of love. Love is from God because He defines love, sending His Son, the, the very Son who died in our place, motivated by love. God is not a person to be seen but we have the Spirit who, who abides in us, motivated by love. That ought to blow our minds. We have a God, a triune God that loves us deeply, individually. And that we're invited into a relationship with that God. It moves us to worship. It ought. Can I pray that we would believe that and move in that direction? Let's pray. Father, we come to things like this that we see in your word and they're confusing. And so we need you to help us understand. One of the ways that we understand some of the things that are written in your word is that we have Jesus as an example, showed us how to live. And not just an example, but he's the one who stood in our place, took on our sin, took on the the wrath that was meant for us from you was placed on him and we now get your favor and through the work of the spirit we're drawn to you we're we're convicted of sin we turn from it we're sealed until the day of redemption when christ returns and makes all things new and so god my prayer for us as a church is, is that we wouldn't breathe by these difficult doctrines that we would sit in them study them, see the beauty of it. That you, God of love, defining love, have called us into relationship with you and have made that possible through your Son and and have sealed us by the Spirit. Would we believe that? Would it move us into adoration and affection and worship? God, we need your help there. And my prayer for those who are in, in places of doubt and unbelief, I'm sure the enemy wants nothing more in a series called We Believe to to push more doubt and unbelief in. So my prayer for those who may be wrestling through doubt and unbelief is is that you would, uh, by your Spirit, give them belief where they don't believe. Give them faith to understand and to see the beauties of some of these uh, difficult doctrines. And for those who do not yet know you, Jesus as Savior, I pray Spirit, that you would be at work softening hearts, drawing people to yourself, that we would all uh, be bowed before the throne, casting crowns before you, worshiping Jesus. This is my prayer for us as a people, God. Answer it. Amen.